0: let us pray. Uh, Father, we come to you right now and uh, we ask for you to uh, make us what we're not. And the first thing is grateful for the way that you've provided forgiveness for us. Father. It's easy for us to take it for granted, but we come to you right now as those that are hungry for a fresh taste of your grace. We pray that you would feed us from your word. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Why don't y'all take your seat. <clears throat> uh, there are few things in life uh, that are more devastating than rejection. Uh, I don't know if you remember the first time that you were rejected? I don't remember the first time, but I remember one time that has stuck with me. Um, It was the fall of 1996, and uh, I was 11 years old and uh, getting ready to be 12, and I go to the coach's door, and I look at the 24 names uh, that were on the basketball uh, team list, And my name didn't make it there. Uh, At 11 years old, it was devastating. Right now, you look back and you say, John, that's not a big deal. Um, But the thing that you start to learn about rejection is that uh, it's a slice of humble pie that after you're done eating, uh, the waiter quickly comes back and gives you seconds. And as you go on and on through life, it seems like every time you get done drinking the cup of rejection, more and more of it comes out. And you know as well as I do that, rege- that rejection is dis- it, it's devastating, um, and it doesn't discriminate. So if you're white, if you're black, if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're beautiful by society's standards or not, you know the feeling of rejection and you know that it's all too familiar, familiar. You know what it's like to be told you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not funny enough, you're not Christian enough to be a part of of this group. And it stings, right? It stings even if the person who rejects you even if you didn't look for their acceptance in the first place and they're just wrong and have bad taste, it still hurts. feels bad. But there are some times where rejection is absolutely deserved. Think of a lazy employee that gets let go. An abusive spouse that gets left an unfaithful boyfriend or girlfriend that gets broken up with, there are times where rejection is absolutely necessary and it's good and it's right. But here's what's odd. You would expect that when rejection is right, it would be easier for you to take, but it's not. Rejection is actually harder to take when you're the one at fault because you know that it's not just somebody's bad taste it's your mistakes my favorite genre of music is full of grown men crying uh, for the mistakes that they've made begging and pleading for the love of their life to take them back men have made millions off of this because as soon as you know Wan Ye starts off with those words and say I'm gonna swallow my pride (laughs) say I'm sorry Stop pointing Uh fingers. Y'all know it. As soon as he says that, do you know what? It resonates with all of us because we're like, even if it wasn't a woman, there was something that I did that was wrong that causes me that feeling of rejection. And rejection not only has a bitter taste, but it has a strong and a long aftertaste. So regardless of how long it's been, Since you've drank the cup of rejection, you can still taste it like it was yesterday. And so what that does is it makes you and I eager to protect ourselves from it. And I think that if you're here, you likely protect yourself in one of three ways. You either um, uproot yourself, right? So what you say is, um, if I feel rejected here, then I'm going to get up and I'm going to go there until I feel rejected there and I'm going to get up and I'm going to go there. And you spend all your time trying to find a place where you're going to be absolutely rejected or, or where, where you'll be absolutely accepted. But what you quickly find out is that there is no place like that. And it is deflating. Or there's some here in this room uh, that uh, it's not that you uproot the seeds. You just won't plant any seeds. You know how hard it is to experience being cast away And so you know that in order for somebody to cast me uh, away, I have to be close to them. So I'm just not going to be close so that I never have to feel what it's like to be cast away. Or there's some that are in here that are like, I'll just fake it and wear masks. I'll just make sure that wherever I go, I find out what they like and I'm just going to give myself to do what they like. Like the Uh, bride to be in coming to America, right? Where he's like, what do you like? Whatever you like, right? And some of us do that, and what you quickly find out is it's exhausting. And so here's what I want you to see. In trying to protect ourselves from the hurt that we get when we're distanced by somebody from rejection, the ironic thing is, is that we preemptively create the distance that we were scared of. So even in our attempts to protect ourselves, we actually lead the way running towards the very thing that we were scared of. And I want you to know, it doesn't just impact how you and I relate to one another. This fear impacts how we relate to God. Show me a person's people interaction and I'll tell you with very clear certainty, what their God interaction is like. And, and so here's what I want to do today. I, wanna, right, I want you to just sit back and think about this. Imagine a life lived with the fear of rejection when it comes to you and God. And as I ask you, to imagine. I stand up here because none of us really have to imagine. A lot of us live with this fear on the inside. We think about the start of the year and the resolutions that we've made, especially with us and God, and a lot of them come because we feel far off from God. We know that we've made mistakes. We look at the past year and we may think, I went too far last year. I did too much, and so this year I'm not going to go as far. You may think, my sin is too frequent. There's no way that God will believe me when I come to him. So this year I'm going to try my best to break those bad habits. Or you may think, "Uh, my sin is too recent. That last night, this morning, I found myself in a place where I know I'm deserving of God's rejection. There's no way. I need to let some more time. this fear of rejection, how it relates to God, it doesn't just uh, affect me and you. Uh, it, re- it affects anybody else that wants to know what God is like, right? People that do not have a relationship with God um, are like uh, high school students when it comes to reading books. They would much rather watch the movie than read the pages, People that don't know God would much rather look at the people that God has forgiven than read the pages that he's written. And so if you struggle with this fear with God, then it doesn't just affect how you relate to God. It affects how you reflect him in the world, how you show the rest of the world that they can be accepted in God's sight. And so what I just want to spend our time on is this. How do we get rid of this paralyzing fear when it comes to God? how you and I relate to God? How do you and I remove from ourselves this fear of rejection? And we start at the same place that we always start, with God's word. So your Bible should be open to Luke 15. It's a familiar story, but I just want to let you know this, y'all. That the God that we serve, uh, he knows our patterns. He's foreseen all of our pitfalls So when he provides a solution in his word, he knows how to solve the problems that you and I face. This fear of rejection that we have, it doesn't just go back into our past. Um, It goes back to the beginning of the history of the world with Adam, who had a perfect relationship with God. And he made a mistake. And do you know what he did? He ran from God. He hid because he felt like if I come clean with all the stuff that I did, God is going to reject me. It's important to know that when we try to hide from God, there is distance between us and God, not because of what God's done, but because of what we've done. We create that. And So a God who loves his kids gives us this story. Let's start Luke 15, starting in verse 1 and 2. It says this all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so what Christ does is he tells them a parable. And here's what it is. A parable um, is not a fable. A fable is a fictional story with a common sense theme that the whole world knows that we just need to be reminded of. The tortoise and the hare, right? Slow and steady wins the race. The the boy who cried wolf, right? Don't lie because if you lie, then a wolf will eat you and people won't cry at your funeral. All stuff that we teach our kids that we want them to know. A parable's not that. A parable is a fictional story, but it's meant to reveal a truth about God that's hidden. And and so this story starts off with religious leaders who love fables, who love just the, the one plus one is two of fables. They love do right and you'll get good, do wrong and you'll be cast out. And they look and see a bunch of people that are happily coming to Jesus and they're frustrated and mad because they're saying These are people that God shouldn't accept. A caveat real quick. If somebody's happiness causes you that much problem, you can be sure that the problem may not be with them, it may be with you. Life works much better when you don't view yourself as the happiness police. So you have these folks that come and they say, these are a group of people that should be rejected by God. And do you know what makes this so hard? Um, Is that they're actually half right. And sometimes being half right uh, is harder to correct than being all the way wrong. Because you have just enough light to think of yourself as enlightened uh, but you don't realize that the light that you have is a candle in a dark stadium. And Jesus comes and talks to them, and he says, hey, I'm going to tell y'all these stories. And so what he does is he kind of builds up to the main story. That's what we're going to spend our time on. But the first stories that he tells are kind of like the hop and the skip at the start of a long jump. And the main point that he brings out in, you know, a sheep being lost and a coin being lost And the person that owns those lost things, trying to find them, the main point that he's trying to bring out is this, is that lost people are valuable to God. Lost people are valuable to God. Each story talks about a man who has all of this, a hundred sheep, and one goes away, and you see the tireless effort of this man to go and find that one sheep, in order for all of us to see that the sheep that was lost was worth just as much as all the ones that were there. G.B. Caird says it like this, to call anyone lost is to pay him a compliment because it means he is precious to God. Jesus not only says that lost people matter to God, but as you go through in each of the accounts, they follow the same theme. That person lost something. They work tirelessly to get it back. And when they get it back, they rejoice. And all their friends come in and rejoice. And then he goes on and says this, look, uh, the same is true when a sinner repents, heaven rejoices, and the the amazing thing about that is, is that Jesus doesn't speak about heaven the way that some of us speak about places that we have never ever been to. Have you ever met somebody that like talks about like Spain and they're like, oh, yeah, Spain is great. You know, the weather is nice. They've got all these things. And you say, oh, Yo, have you ever been to Spain? Well, no, but I've heard a bunch of about it. This is not Jesus speculating on what happened. heaven is like this is him talking as somebody that says that's where i came from so when he speaks what he's saying is i share god's attitude towards lost people and all of my friends rejoice when they come back the people that are outside are those that don't share the attitude of god lost people are valuable to god and these first two parables is a Hop and a skip. And then he goes on into this last one. This is the big jump. It's so big and there's so much in it that this story, we're going to talk about it this week and next week, but we're going to spend the bulk of our time on, on the story of the first son. And the very first thing, what you see here is you get a picture of somebody who has earned rejection. Look here how what starts off. He said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he he distributed the assets to them. We'll stop right there. This is not, right, back in these days, it's not like this dad just had a bank account full of money. He's like, Dad, can you uh, cut off a third of that and give me what's mine? The inheritance that the son asks for uh, would only come to him after his father had died. And so in him saying, hey, uh, give me what's mine, what he's basically saying is, "Um, I wish that you were dead. I would enjoy life more if you weren't here and I just had all of your stuff. This story starts off with rejection, but not one of the dad to the son. One of the son to the dad, but look at what the the, the dad does. It says so. He distributed. Um, so he distributed the assets to them. Um, you know, sometimes uh, love requires us to do all that we can to hold on to somebody, uh, but sometimes. Love requires of us to let them go. And to trust that experience uh, often has a way of explaining things better than you and I can. When it comes to the definition of hot, a stove explains that better than any dictionary could. And so this father who loves his son as we'll see doesn't hold him hostage and tell him to stay. He acquiesces And lets him go. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. The first mistake of the son is that he thought his joy was found in him being anonymous. I can go to a place where nobody knows me. And autonomous. I can go to a place where, uh, there's nobody that can tell me what to do. And what you quickly find out is this, uh, where you're anonymous, where nobody knows you and you're autonomous, free to do what you want. Uh, do you know what comes out? The real you. So the phrase, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, uh, that kind of hides the truth of what happens in Vegas um, is insight into who you really are. And it's easy for us to get into places like those and to excuse what we've done. I'm I'm shocked by what came out of me. I can't believe that I did this. Uh, But instead of making excuses when sin comes out, a better thing for you and I to do um, is to ask questions. Not, I I only did that because, but why, why did I do that? What was I really after? And so here you have this son who is convinced that his joy is found in the absence of a father. He's convinced that he didn't need a father. He just needed stuff and he would be full of joy. And when it talks about his estate, y'all, it says this. He squandered his estate in foolish living. Six words that doesn't even bring up any joy that he had from what he got. And isn't that how sin works, y'all? It makes us think that we have everything. And we see that we consume it so quickly and all we do is look back and think of man how my life has been wasted. Yeah, I I I I remember, you know, I grew up in a Christian household and you know, uh made a profession of faith at a young age, 6 years old, and throughout my, my uh up until I graduated high school, uh I kind of lived life pursuing pleasure things that I th- thought would satisfy my soul and it was The summer after I graduated from high school in Nigeria with my folks, uh, and we got robbed at gunpoint, and my face is down in the dirt on a dirt road, and I didn't look back at my past years with fondness about all the things that I did. I was filled with this sense of, I've wasted my life. Pleasures of sin come quick, but they leave very quickly just to go on. He hits rock bottom loses all his stuff, finds himself in complete desperation, and what he quickly finds out uh, is that his friends stopped answering his calls once he started calling collect. There's half of y'all in here that don't know what a collect call is. Back when we didn't have cell phones, there were these things called pay phones. If you didn't have a quarter, you could call somebody collect and it would charge them. That's neither here nor there. And what you get at at the end of this story is a son that experiences desperation. And just look what takes place. You have a son that's at home in need of nothing. Goes to his father, wishes he was dead, wants to move him out of his life, and gets everything. And then what he does is he goes into this land and he, he wastes it all. And as the story goes on, we find this son who goes into this town, and then he has nothing, and he goes to work. And what he quickly finds out is that nobody gives him anything. So you have a son in need of nothing, gets everything from his father, wastes it all, and now you have a son that is in need of everything goes hard to work, humiliates himself. As the Jews heard this and heard that he worked with pigs and longed to feed himself from those pods, they would have looked and said, this is humiliating, this is rock bottom. He's at rock bottom, and what he finds out is that all the friends that he had that he was buying bottles for at the club, all the friends that he had that he said, if I'm eating, then we all are, all his friends that he had, There was nobody to help him. And you have him in complete desperation. And then look where the story turns. Verse 17, it says this. When he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, he decides to go back home. Here's what I want you to hear. The Bible doesn't view this phrase when it came to his sentences. It doesn't communicate it as an indictment on him. It communicates it as a good thing. And you and I would be wise to do the same. Here's what I mean by that. Um, We tend to judge the merit of somebody's apology by the consequences that led them there. So we tend to say, you didn't really mean that. You're only saying that because you got caught. As if, in, as if that somehow takes away from the fact that this. That consequences are God's vehicle of choice to drive you and I to sanity. Sometimes the only way that God can make us sane and help us to see things clearly is if you and I experience the consequences of our actions. You may look here and say, well, he only went back home because he got caught. He ran out of money. He was desperate. And I would say, of course he did. That's not meant to take away from the sincerity. It's meant to show you and I how deceptive sin actually is. It's meant to show us all that even when we're on a downward spiral, Sin can have us feeling as if things are okay. They'll turn any day now. I'm not going to get caught. Things aren't going to blow up. Here's why I say that. You go in your Bible and you look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, and what you'll find is the author of the Psalms, King David, um, does what, if he did it today, uh, would get him thrown out of the castle. He abuses his maleness, his wealth, his keenness, his privilege. And as a peeping time, he sees not just a, a woman, but a married woman. And he abuses the platform that he had to convince her to sleep with him. Then when she gets pregnant, he goes further than anybody in Hollywood it seems like thus far have, has gone. But he has her decorated and dedicated husband murdered and then he adds her to the wives that he already has. And do you know what? As far as we know, he doesn't confess it to his soul or come clean until a prophet Nathan comes, shares with him a parable of a man who had a bunch of sheep and stole this one sheep. And David says, "Uh, kill that man. And Nathan says, "Uh, David, actually, that man is you. (laughs) And David, the writer of the Psalms, the person with a man after God's own heart, comes clean after he gets caught. That's how deceptive sin is. And I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do want you and I, one, to know that um, desperation is actually a very good thing from God. So you and I should learn to praise God for the sufferings that take place in our life that lead us to sensibility. You and I should learn not to be the police of the sincerity of people that come back. Sometimes desperation is a very good thing, and it's a blessing. Here's why. Uh, desperation, uh, desperation has a way of illuminating the kindness of God. Look, here what he says in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food and here I'm dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father. And then he talks about this speech. What he does is as he looks back, here's the beautiful thing. Here's what drives him to repentance and to return home. Not punishment that he thinks he's going to get from his dad, although he should, but he knows that Being outside of the presence of the father is punishment enough and the father is not the one to blame for where he is. But what makes him come back is that his desperation causes him to look back at the things he took for granted as he is on his hands and knees feeding pigs, longing to eat what they ate with nobody giving him anything. He looks back and thinks, man, I remember the servants in my dad's house. They didn't have it as bad as this. They had more than enough to, to eat. And do you know what these hard times do for us, y'all? They make the kindness of God all the more clear. Uh, God's kindness uh, glows in the dark. Uh, back when I was in high school or as I yeah, yeah grew up, um, I had friends, and what they would do is, on their ceiling, they'd put all these, like, glow-in-the-dark stars. You all ever have friends that do the same thing? I don't don't know why, but it's, you know, a white ceiling, and they have these, like, white stars on it. And you can go into the room, and if you look hard enough, you can tell. Uh, But if you don't pay any attention, you'll take it for granted until the lights go off. Then what you took for granted shines so much brighter. That's what God's kindness is like. It's easy for us to go through life and to feel like frustrated or mad because we don't have all the stuff that we think that we should have. But when God turns off the lights in our lives, when desperation comes, it causes you and I to see the kindness of God as more bright. God's kindness shines in the dark, and so you and I should be grateful and thank the Lord that we don't live lives of uninterrupted, Success. We're going to move on. Uh, Desperation not only helps him see the kindness of God. uh, Desperation, it actually leads him to a decision. Look what uh, takes place. He knows that he has to go home. He knows that he messed up big time. So what he does is he gets on the phone with a publicist, uh, the same one that, you know, helped You know, Chris Brown through his joint, help Tiger Woods through his joint, Kobe, LeAngelo Ball. And they say, hey, here's what you have to do. You have to fess up with your sin um, and then tell what you're going to do. He goes on and he starts to rehearse this speech. He said, I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Right, that's an important thing for us to know about sin. Sin is ultimately done to God. We break his law. We owe this great grand debt to God, but sin affects other people. And so he says, I'm going to come and own up. I've sinned. I've done wrong. 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called uh, your son. That is absolutely true. That for all of what he's done, for the disrespect that he's brought to his father, for the insult, for making his father a laughingstock, for wasting his father's hard-earned money and resources, for disgracing his family name, he's no longer worthy to be called a son. Hear me when I say this, y'all. What sin does? Sin is a thief. It robs you and I of the worth that God has placed inside of us. Sin is a thief. It pats you on the back only so that it can steal your wallet. What sin does for us, y'all, is it it promises us great reward, but the only thing that it leaves us with is remorse and regret. And so he says here, I'm going to say to my dad, I've sinned against God, and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then he goes on and says this, make me like one of your hired workers. And that seems noble. It seems innocent. But let me tell you, it is a mistake that what he does is he's so fearing the rejection that will come if he comes back in repentance to the father, that what he says is, well, let me just come back at the lowest point that I can come back, so that I can work off and pay things. And he makes the same mistake that he made at the start of this story, and that was this, coming to his father, demanding anything. The story starts off with him saying, give me what's coming. He's trying to set the terms of relationship with the father. It ends here with him confessing that he's wrong, but then he says, make me this. Give me this. It's once again him trying to set the terms of how he's going to be received by his father. And his error is that he wants relationship restored, but his solution is too shallow. His solution is all wrong, he aims too low. This is not a quick fix. What he's done demands a funeral. Here's the options that his dad had. For the disrespect that his son had, his dad could have put him to death, stoned him. His dad could have dismissed him when he came back, said, nah, you wanted to live on your own. Uh, go and live on your own and send him right back. Or what his dad could have done is demoted him. And that would have been the most gracious. Come back as a slave. Work things off. Earn your keep. What the son did is absolutely worthy of rejection. And even his way to fix things was an insult against the father as if he could actually come in as a slave and make up for all the hurt that he caused. Your future acts of good do not erase or make up for the bad things that have been done. So him trying to pay back his father, us trying to pay back God for our sin is insufficient. And here's what I mean by insufficient. It's like trying to pay off the national debt, which is in trillions, not just in pennies. Because even if you brought pennies, what they could say is, uh, well, what you brought is not enough. And they could say, come back when you have more. Trying to pay God back for the things that we've done is like trying to pay off the uh, national debt in monopoly money. You don't tell them, ah, this isn't enough. Come back when you have more. Because even if they brought all the monopoly in the world, it wouldn't make a dent because all of it is valueless. So it is when you and I try to come back to God and pay him back for all the things that we've done, we don't have the right currency, y'all. This son rejects his father feels the desperation that comes from turning his back on the home that he was from and comes up with a plan of how he's going to set things right. It's somebody that is worthy of the rejection that he receives. And in the response of the father, here's the good news. What you see is the father comes at him with interruption after interruption. He, he rehearses his speech, and the first thing that the father does is this, is he interrupts his journey. Verse 20. So he got up and went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. So here's what takes place. The son is probably walking back home slowly. How fast do you walk when you have to fess up to something that you've done wrong? He probably has his head down, soaking, rehearsing what he's going to say. And as his father sees him, the assumption again is not just that the dad was just so happy to be outside this day. The assumption is that every day since the son left home that the father was outside looking for when he would come back. And the father runs towards him, forsakes his Dignity. Old men didn't run and sees this filthy son and he puts his arms around him and hugs him and kisses him. Y'all, I want you to hear this. If more than half of communication is nonverbal, what type of environment do you think was created when the father comes and embraces his son like this? This is not a father that has to be won over. This is not a father that stands back with his arms folded, waiting for a good enough reason to take him back. This is a father that's eager for the return of his son. This son didn't have to make it all the way home to experience the love of the father. And I want you to know the same thing. You don't have to make it all the way home to experience God's love. If forgiveness and repentance are a foot race where we're running as fast as we can towards repentance and at the same time God is running as fast as he can towards forgiveness, God wins that foot race every time. The father creates an environment for his son to come back by hugging and kissing him. Do you know how God creates an environment for you and I to come back? Romans 5, 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died on the cross for our sins. So anybody that finds themselves feeling like I've gone too far, my sins are too frequent, my sins are too recent, you can see that the God that you appeal to is not somebody sitting back with his arms folded waiting to be one. How's that for nonverbals? How's that for creating an environment to confess? The father, uh, there's a preacher that told this story of a boy who Uh, was at odds with his parents, and he leaves home, says, I'm not going to come back. They fight. And he gets to a point where he says, I want to come back, but I feel like that the sin that I've done um, is so much that my mom and dad would never accept me. So being faced with this rejection, what he does is he calls them, leaves a voicemail at the house and says, hey, mom and dad, I want to come home. Uh, But I don't know if I could bear the thought of staring you in the eyes and being face to face and to hear you say, leave. So here's what you can do. I've got an old blue shirt in my room. Um, If you would just hang it in the window, I'll walk by the house at some point tomorrow. If I see that shirt there, I'll come in. If not, I'll just walk on by. Well, as he walks down the street to his house, um, he doesn't spot his house at first until he looks um, and sees that the house has actually been painted blue. Overwhelmingly creating an environment for him to come in. This is what the father does before he even says a word. I want you to hear wherever you are, especially at the top of the year, for those that say, oh, I really need to get back in terms with God this year, and you've got a you know, six-month plan about how you're going to make things right, um, the journey back to our Lord is never as long as you think that it is because God does better than meet you halfway. Y'all make this foot race, and God comes. The Father comes. But not only does the Father come and interrupt his journey. Look here at what's that? He ran and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And so the son asks his dad, all right, right, dad, back up. I've got this speech that I want to read. He pulls out a speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. God, I've done wrong. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And verse 22 is a but. And that contrast helps us see that the son had rehearsed a speech. He had three things that he wanted to say. I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm going to fix this thing by being your slave. And before he can get to that, I'm going to fix this thing, the father interrupts him and says this, quick, bring out the best robe, not just his old one, not just the one that he left, but the best one. And put on him a ring. A ring is a sign of the authority that he shares in the house. Give him sandals. This was a sign that um, he was not going to be accepted as a servant. Servants didn't wear shoes. Sons did. So he says, bring out his house shoes. Then he goes on and says this. Slaughter the fattened calf. We're going to party." An innocent calf is slain as the son comes back home. If anything gives us a picture of what takes place when we come back, Christ himself, the innocent, loses his life to make way for the celebration that comes when God recovers his own. And what you and I find, what we see is that this is a story of a father that doesn't meet the repentance of a son with an I told you so, but he meets it with a I'm glad that you're home. You know the main point of this first part? The main point of this first part is this. uh, For all of us that fear rejection from God, you do not have to fear rejection because the warmest reception is waiting, is waiting for everybody that walks in repentance. God doesn't just rejoice over good deeds. God rejoices over needs and people that know their need and turn to Him. This is so much more than God bringing you back and putting you in the doghouse. This is a father bringing him back and turning it into a celebration. There's some dissimilarities in this story as well. The first one is this. The father in this story sees his son from a long way off. And it's only after he sees him from a long way off that he runs towards him. The God of the Bible is all places at all times which means there is never a time, there has never been a time where God's eyes have been off of you. God doesn't have eyes like you and I, so he doesn't need to blink. There's never been a millisecond that you haven't been in his sight. This father throws a feast that at some point, regardless of how big it is, it will end. The God of the Bible is planning a feast and a celebration that when it starts will never end as an expression of his never-ending love and joy that he wants to share with you and I. And anybody that walks in repentance, anybody that turns from their sin and just makes those steps back to God, this is the type of reception that is received Not because we've paid God back, but because God has gone through great lengths to pay for our sin by sending his perfect son to be slaughtered on our behalf. So here's what this means for us. I think it means at least three things briefly. And the very first one is this. Repent. Don't stay away from God any longer than you have to. St. Augustine says this. The confession of evil works is the beginning of good ones. You may say, um, I've gone too far. There's no way that God would accept somebody like me that has crossed those lines. Read your Bible and you'll see just how many line crosses have been brought back into the grace of God. You may say, uh, my sin has been too frequent. There's no way that God will believe me. And I want you to know that we serve a God that is in the habit of breaking bad habits. We serve a God that provides for us the power to have a track record that he's pleased with. So you don't stay on the fringes until you have a good pattern of faithfulness. You come to him to get that great pattern of faithfulness. You may be here and say, my sin is too recent. It's just been, like you may say, John, it's, it's fresh. It's like 10 a.m. fresh. And what I say is, you know, a second apart from God, God looks at that and says too much time has already passed. Now, you don't get into God's good graces by the passage of time. You get into God's good graces by the sacrifice of his son. So regardless if you feel like you've gone too far, your sin is too frequent or it's too recent, don't stay away. And the good news is you don't even have to wait until we're done to come up to the front as if that is some magical way of showing your love and commitment to God right here in your seat right now if you say, I'm far from God and I don't want to be. Jesus Christ is that bridge. Right where you are. Your eyes don't even have to be closed. Turn to him. There's no obstacle that stands in the way of forgiveness outside of your own pride. Let your pride go. Turn back to him and experience the warm reception two more don't just repent but receive and here's what I mean by that display the kindness of God so that the people that look at your life will be convinced that the God that you serve is a God of free forgiveness and mercy you know one of the biggest mistakes that I think I've made in my life um Uh, you know, anybody that has a family member or friends that have dealt with any type of addiction or anything like that, one of the biggest mistakes that I've made in my life is um, um, I've been very vocal in correction, but I've been very timid and reserved in celebration. I'm very clear when you've done wrong and the consequences of your action, but when things have turned, when I've had family members that have turned, I've been so scared that they're going to go back that I kind of wait before I celebrate and rejoice what God has done. And church, that just cannot be true for any of us. I don't care what church background that you came from. If you sat in your seat and you didn't clap or you were in a church where you You ran around the the church and praised. I don't care what background you came from. I don't care how introverted or extroverted you are. Do you know what the people of God do when people repent? They rejoice in an embarrassing way they lose their dignity and they praise God because it's not just people that have found their way home as this father describes what takes place he says that my son was lost has been found but he said i had a son that was dead that has been brought back to life you know we celebrate birthdays we celebrate anniversaries we celebrate all kinds of things we find a reason to rejoice about promotions. How can we be silent when God brings life into people? That's what we want to see as a church. Imagine, just if you would, in this story, how many other sons that had beef with their fathers would look at this father in the that he treated his son and said, man, I worked my tail off to get back in with my dad. And here this guy comes in and they throw a party for him. I wish he was my dad. That father only has enough resources to bring so many people into his house. Our heavenly father has resources that are limitless. One of the ways that we can be an attractive church is one by freely forgiving people that have done us wrong. And here's what, not just in a generic sense where you leave here and say, all right, I really need to forgive more. No, but in an actual sense where you sit down right now and you make a list of these are the specific people that I need to forgive and you pray and pray and pray until God works in your heart for a forgiveness to take. That's an attractive church where a bunch of sinful people can sin against one another, and it doesn't hinder relationship at all. That's one. But two, for us to be a church, where when sinners come to, to faith, that we rejoice, like there's no tomorrow that we throw a party that dwarfs every other thing that we celebrate, y'all. We want to repent, we want to receive. And lastly. We want to retrieve. The point of this story is that Jesus is saying his attitude towards lost people is God's attitude towards lost people. And so if we are his, then God's attitude towards lost people is our attitude towards lost people. And what that means is that the people that God has sovereignly placed in our lives shouldn't have to find their way into these four walls before they hear about the love of the Lord. That instead of waiting on them to come back, you and I are compelled to go. Because we have good news, y'all. What would take place if we were as eager as God was to accept broken people? Do you know what would take place? Our church would be messy. Our church would be full of a bunch of people that don't know all the rules, right? Our church would be full of people that come in and don't even know that that's your seat on Sunday and they sit down where you sit. It's a messy church, y'all, but it would be a messy church full of a bunch of people praising God for the mess that we're in. We stand in a world where people know what rejection tastes like. We have a fresh cup of forgiveness for everybody that repents to wash that taste right out of their mouth. It starts with the way that you and I repent. We can't give anybody something that we don't have. But after we get that forgiveness, we receive them in the same way and we give them just what we've gotten. And we celebrate when God does crazy works in our lives. And then we join the search party and we go out and retrieve. This warm reception from God is available to everybody that would walk in repentance. Will you walk there? Let's pray. Uh, Father, again, we come to you and we ask that you would make us what we're not, Father. Make us those that are quick to turn to you, Father. Help us to take five looks at Jesus for every one look we take at our sin. Father, if you've made us desperate, I pray that you would give us eyes to see your kindness and that would motivate us to run back to you. Um, And we pray this for our whole church. that Cornerstone Church would be a place where repentant sinners are celebrated in such a way that it leads every sinner to be a sensible one and to turn their back on their sin and walk towards you, Father. Would you make that true of us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We pray. Amen.